Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor, Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to look at the updated All-Star Game ballots. We're going to look at Wander Franco joining the Tampa Bay Rays. We're going to take a minute to gawk at what Matt Olson is doing in Oakland. We're going to share a really weird Braves stat that I haven't seen anybody else talk about that I'm pretty excited to get into. Uh, we're going to highlight a couple of guys you should know more about. And as usual, we are going to rant and rave. The first thing I wanted to point out, Matt, is so today is Thursday, June 24th. Did you notice how weird baseball was yesterday, just in like a single game sense? Like the Padres swept the Dodgers. Okay, that's unexpected, but not weird. The Phillies blew leads of 5 nothing and 9-5 and 12-11 to lose to Washington 13-12. to The White Sox, uh, Tony La Russa had some great bunting situations presented to him with the pitcher batting in a National League park. Didn't choose to do it either time. The pitcher struck out and grounded into a double play, which was shocking to me. And finally, the peace day resistance. The Giants-Angels game yesterday, the first game in the history of baseball where the National League team used a DH and the American League team did not. And also the Angels used an emergency catcher and also an Angels pitcher played outfield who wasn't Shohei Otani. And Mike Talkman struck out five times in a row before hitting a three-run home run in the 13th. And also the Giants won 9-3 in 13 innings, but only after they lost 2-1 in the 12th, but didn't because the play at the plate was overturned. What a weird day and what a particularly weird game. And I haven't even gotten into pitchers dropping their pants in front of umpires. What a weird week. Uh, <laughs> the... The Giants game was most decidedly weird. I'll get back to it in a second. The Phillies game, the Phillies play a crazy game every day. What would be weird is if the Phillies played a normal game. That would be weird. That was basically a typical Phillies game this year. Every time I turn on a Phillies game, something insane is happening. I mean, just the, just the night before was the whole Max Scherzer, Joe Girardi incident where Girardi checked him on the mound for foreign substance after he'd already been uh, – checked twice it was a whole thing and then Girardi probably rightfully got ejected and it was that was Phillies games are crazy by nature the Giants game I thought that was a uh, bad overturn in my opinion I thought that he was there was not enough evidence to overturn that's just one man's opinion and when uh, Juan Lagares tried to scored what it thought everyone thought was the winning run and I don't even know what inning that was the 12th or something but yes Griffin Canning played the outfield. They had an emergency catcher. Dylan Bundy pinch hit. It was uh, these are the weird things that happen when you're an American League team and you don't use the DH, right? This is 
<laughs> you end up in these situations. By the way, the highlight of my week was laying with laying in bed with my wife the other night, explaining to her why Sergio Romo was dropping his pants because it's like, oh, this is baseball now. And it's funny because everybody talked about Romo and everybody talked about Scherzer. But if you actually look at the, the math, it's like, well, you know, 180 or something other checks were fine. So that that part has been fine. Okay, let's talk about the All-Star game. The All-Star game is in Colorado. It's only a couple weeks away. And um, phase one of the fan voting is set to conclude today. And so Matt and I thought we would go through uh, each of the current leaders, maybe have a couple of opinions about who we think should be there. It's funny, I make my All-Star rosters like every year, and I always put out a couple of updates. And mine are always slightly different because I just look at who I think should be in there. I totally ignore fan voting, but obviously for the real game, you have to worry about that. Um, So let's just take a quick look. You know, at first base, the American League, it's pretty easy, right? It's going to be Vlad Guerrero Jr. And he's got almost 50% of the vote. You know, Yuli Gurriel, Abreu, Walsh, Matt Olson. um, Is there a case for anybody who's not Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? And no, so then we can move on, right? Well, I want to make a couple of points here. The way the voting is done, phase one will end and the top three in phase one will move on to phase two and we start from scratch. Right. So even though Vladimir Guerrero is running away with the voting now at first base, the voting is going to end on Thursday, the day we record this. It's going to start again, I think, next on Monday. And we're starting from zero. And this is where it could get interesting in terms of voting, where fans of a certain team or of a player could get behind a player. And, you know, everyone says, oh, the Astros, you know, people think the Astros are villains. I think the Astros have as many finalists, have, have as many players positioned to be finalists of any team in baseball. Uh, I'm assuming that's just, you know, maybe a Houston Astros fans with the us against the world mentality. But we're going to start from zero, so it will be interesting. That said, Gurriel's been great. Vlad should start the All-Star game because he's the best and because he's the biggest star. This will only be funny to you and me and anybody else who lives in or around New York City. We should have ranked choice voting for the All-Star team. (laughs) I think that would be awesome. Um, Did you notice the so in the National League, it looks like right now Muncie is leading Freddie Freeman, but not by a lot. And have you noticed that the National League first baseman this year have just been not great? Like overall, the performance hasn't been that good because like, you know, Hosmer has been terrible and Freeman's been OK. You know, Muncie's been really good. Um, I picked Muncie when I picked my team. And it's funny, I kind of went back and forth. There was a minute when Muncie was hurt where my first baseman were Jesus Aguiar and Paven Smith, but only because the Diamondbacks needed a guy and Cattell Marte was hurt and actually is hurt again. So I wonder if Paven Smith is going to make the team. I just, I'm not as impressed by National League first baseman as I usually am. Uh, no, it's, it's sort of a, a weak a weak crop. I mean, Max Muncy has been playing the best. Freddie Freeman has been better than he looks. His expected weighted on base is way better than his actual weighted on base. Um, I'm the kind of person who would go with the biggest star, who a combination of star and performance. I would probably vote for Freddie Freeman. That would be my pick. Just you know, he is the reigning National League MVP and maybe a borderline Hall of Famer one day. I would vote for him over Max Muncie, although uh, I understand why people would vote for Max Muncie, and I don't think it's egregious to do so. I just looked. Uh, I looked this up while you were talking. So, National League first baseman as a group in the history of baseball, at least going back to 1901, they have a weighted on base of 319, and that is tied with 1908 for the third weakest performance by a league's position. Uh, 1963 was the worst. 1968 was the second worst, and 2021, and that includes Max Muncie being really good. It's just it's kind of weird to see a position where you just think of like huge mashers. And I know that hasn't been the case over the last couple of years, but in the National League, at least this year, it's been 
kind of dreadful. Um, second base is interesting in the American League because right now you have Marcus Simeon ahead of Jose Altuve. And I don't really have a problem with either of those guys. Like they've, they've each been very good. They are the two second basemen on my own personal list. But Simeon's had kind of a weird year, right? Like wasn't that good to start the year. It was amazing in May and then has been only okay in June. Like if you actually look at it now, Altuve um, has been a better hitter. You know, he's, he's had a, a pretty big rebound from last year. And was it just the last week we talked about how great the Astros were? I can't, you know, what's time anymore, right? The Astros are amazingly good. Nobody wants to talk about it, uh, but they are great. And I think you're right. They're going to have like six hitters on this team. It'll be interesting to see if Altuve, when they go to the finals, can can win the vote because in many ways, he's the maybe the like the the biggest villain in some ways in baseball right now. I was talking to our Astros reporter Brian McTaggart, and he was like, "It's like it's relentless on the road." Altuve gets it as like the he's become the symbol of the Astros sign stealing scandal for you know, for whatever whatever you think of it. It's just he's become the, the focal point. He gets booed the worst, but I think he's probably the choice. But my guess is for that reason, there'll be enough of anti. Astro sentiment and Simeon will get it. So far, I have more or less agreed with the fan choices. Here's the first one where I have uh, I have some issues. Okay, in the National League at second base, Ozzy Albie's is leading, and not by a lot. He's leading with 18 percent of the vote here. <laughs> you know, so it's not like he's crushing the voting here. Uh, Adam Frazier second, Gavin Lux is third. Well, that's I'm not into it. Like, first of all, Lux has not had a good year, so he I'm out on him. Albies has been decent. He's been fine. Has he been better than Jake Cronenworth? No. Has he been better than Adam Frazier, at least this year? No, I don't think so. And I understand this is not an aspect of fan voting, but you know, you got to have a Rocky and that's probably going to be Ryan McMahon. <laughs> well, you also have to have a pirate. There could be Adam Frazier. <laughs> well, Adam, it's got to be Frazier or it's going to be Ryan Reynolds. Like that's it. Yeah. So that's my second bit. I mean, I, I went with um, Frazier and McMahon kind of to like, fulfill those requirements to be honest <laughs> Albies is an interesting player in general I I feel like he's just kind of settled into being this is who he is which is good player but not yeah. a couple years ago it looked like he might be a, there he had got out to that really hot start I want to say it was 2019 it might have been 2018 and there was this look of oh this guy might be a superstar but it's basically just who he is now which is like a good player but a guy who's going to hit 260 330 like 480 uh, with with some speed, got some pops, up the middle player, good player, but I'm not sure he's much more than that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, he's a good, solid player, but I'm not putting him in, you know, the Soto, Acuna, Vladdy, Tatis. Like, like there's, there's a level below those guys. All right, third base in the American League, Rafael Devers is leading by a lot over Bregman, who's hurt, and Yuan Moncada. Those are the top three. Um, I don't really have a problem with that. I would, I would, Maybe, you know, talk up Jose Ramirez a little bit because he's had a really good year. But uh, what a, what a return to form by Rafael Devers. And I got to say, even on defense, too, he looked pretty rough in defense last year. And that's that's been better. I have, you know, kudos to the fans on this one. I have I have no problems with this one. Devers, um, that's it's easy choice to me. You know, I love Moncada, but he just has hit for no power this year. Um, and Bregman's hurt. So Devers, easy choice for me. Yeah, I'm going to uh, let's see. I'm going to recuse myself from this next one from National League third baseman. And that is because my whole rant later on is built around National League third baseman. I will say right now the voting is Bryant, Arenado Turner, and then Riley Machado. Uh, this is I'm opening the floor to you. Um, well, uh, it's a weird one because, you know, Brian plays a lot of places. So I guess, you know, he has to be on the ballot somewhere. Uh, I think he ident- he's most identified as a third baseman. So, you know, 
you're, you're stepping on my rants here. You're stepping. You're stepping so, on I'm me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to say this seems fine. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this one later, guys. This, that's a, this is a teaser for, the, for those of you who are, uh, you know, not in the podcast business. This is what's called a teaser. <laughs> it's it's fine. All right, American League shortstop uh, Xander Bogarts is up by a lot over Bo Bichette and Carlos Correa. How could you possibly argue that? Bo- Bogarts has been fantastic. Correa has been fantastic. There's a huge gap between those guys. And Bo Bichette. I did want to briefly mention Isaiah Kiner Falefa, who has been talking a huge game about how he, you know, thinks he belongs in this race and is a better shortstop. And I love that. Like, why would you why would you not think you're great if you were a, a you know big league ball player and his story of going to like infield to catcher to third and winning a gold glove? Like he's cool. I I like him very much. And I like that whenever I tweet about him, his dad likes my tweets. Like that's <laughs> one of my favorite parts about it. There's also not an argument for him, I don't think, here. He's a league average hitter who's a pretty solid defensive shortstop. And you have Bogarts and Correa who are both having like MVP caliber seasons. Of course. Um, Bogarts, I'll take him. Part of my argument for Bogarts is also an aesthetic one. He has a swing like, like no one else in baseball. That This sort of like one arm, like they were just, he gets a lot of extension with one arm and I just like watching him hit. So uh, Ty goes to the, uh, the aesthetics for this for me. National League shortstop, I'm going to say something I didn't think was possible to say. Is Fernando Tatis Jr. still underrated? <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. Like, we hype him constantly, right? And whenever I write something or tweet something about like how amazingly good and putting him in a historical context, it's funny because like 20% of the replies are stop hyping him so much, you know, like market the stars, but not like that. And here he is with a uh, slugging percentage of over 650. You know, you look at weighted runs created plus it's 70% better than league average. He's got 15 steals. I know the the defense has been like inconsistent and he made a lot of silly mistakes um but man he's he is living up to all of the expectations i don't he's not going to win the mvp probably because um i think jake DeGrom might win the mvp if he stays healthy but he's certainly in the conversation he's leading the vote 36 percent Baez, who has not been that great next seager who's been hurt is third um where's trey turner give me trey turner no give me brandon crawford he's been unbelievable this year the all-star game is made for people like Fernando Tatis Jr. This is the guy people are going to watch. This is this is, this is is the way it should be going. And I will say, I think that over the years, the fans have generally gotten better. Partially, is that because the voting has started starts later now and is all online? So it's you're way less susceptible to the guy who just had the great April, right? We're not starting till – the voting didn't start till June. So things there was way more of a chance for things to kind of even out a little bit and some of the better players who maybe start a little slow to kind of pick things up. And I think that generally speaking, the fan vote, we don't see these like weird out of nowhere. Like, why, how did, why, why is this guy starting? That used to pop up a bit um, prior to when they moved the voting back. For Brian Lehair, you could have just said you're mean Mercedes. You didn't have to. You didn't have to dance around it. Like I, I joked yesterday on Twitter, like, you know, for a while it was, hey, is he going to be in the All-Star game? And now I'm actively wondering if he's going to make it to the All-Star game on the White Sox roster because it has been rough for him. He is not going to make the All-Star game. Okay. Um, American League outfield. This one's kind of weird for me because we have some huge stars who are hurt. The top, let's say, I'll give you the top five in fan voting, right? Number one, Trout. Number two, Judge. Number three, Byron Buxton. Number four, Adolis Garcia. And number five, I was kind of surprised by this, Teoscar Hernandez, who's been great. I, I did not expect that fan support. Here's the problem with this top five. Trout's hurt. I don't think he's going to be back by the All-Star game. Buxton is hurt. He's definitely not going to be back by the All-Star game. And 
you know, if you knock those two guys out, like when I put this roster together, I understand this is not how fan voting works. The outfield is a really good place to like squeeze in the guy you need representation from, you know? So for me, that's like, oh yeah, Mitch Hanniger, let's get a Mariner in there. Perfect. Um, it, oddly enough, despite how good the Rays have been, it's really hard to find a Ray. And that's partially because of their whole like ethos of we don't have stars. We've got tons of depth. It's also partially because Glasnow is hurt. You know, I think Austin Meadows might be the guy here. Maybe Mike Zanino. But the name I wanted to point out who is not doing great in voting. He's ninth uh, is Cedric Mullins, who has been awesome. Like he absolutely has to make this team. And I think he will. He's been one of the most fun stories of the year, as we highlighted on the show, I think two weeks ago. This is going to be an interesting one when they reset the voting, because I do think fans will probably respond to Trout and Buxton being hurt and less likely to vote for them. The other thing, just for that reason, because it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to vote for a guy who's hurt. Also, another factor that I didn't mention before about why I think fans have gotten better at voting is that now with the, vo- the online ballot, everyone has like sortable stats there. So it's very easy when you're voting to see like, oh, this is not, you know, when we were kids, Mike, and you had the punch card at the ballpark where you're just kind of guessing based on what you remembered from the stats in the newspaper, it's, or just names that you recognized, it's, oh, I can see right now, I can sort based by OPS or home runs or batting average or RBIs, and it's very easy. I, I think that we could see, we also might see teams start to do campaigns when guys are finalists. I think the the path for Cedric Mullins to start the All-Star game, once he's on that finalist ballot and people see his stats, next to everyone else is uh, is very interesting. It's also going to be pretty wild if somehow Alex Verdugo ends up starting the All-Star game and Mookie Betts does not. <laughs> oh, that's mean. I mean, it's not wrong, but it's it's mean. All right, the National League number one vote getter is obviously Ronald Acuna Jr. No complaints there. Number two and three are Reds teammates Nick Castellanos and Jesse Winker. They're both crushing the ball. No problems there whatsoever. And then you get into uh, Mookie Betts, Chris Taylor, Juan Soto, Jock Peterson, Bryce Harper, Tyler O'Neill. I think this is going to be an interesting battle of fame and track record and what's actually happening this year. You know, like Juan Soto to me is in the same class as Acuna and Tatis and Vlad, but he's he's having a good year. He's not having a great year. You know, like he's he's not hitting better this year than, let's say, uh, Mike Yastrzemski, you know, or even Kyle Schwarber. And certainly I think he's more talented than that. I want to see him more than that. But then you just sort of get into your own like personal outlook of what is the All-Star game? Is it the biggest stars? Is it just the guys with the best season to date? You know, and that's, I think, a different opinion for everybody. Uh, almost kind of bets falls into that a little bit, too. Like he's had a good year. Hasn't had a great year. And um, I wonder what people will do with Tyler O'Neill, who's been hurt and missed a little time. And I don't think he qualifies. So maybe that'll hurt him because you're not going to see his name. But he has been really, really good this year. I think this top three is going to stick. Reds fans are a passionate bunch. Um, and I think that there's going to be like a real excitement to vote for Castellanos and Winker, which I understand. Like you, for me, I would have Acuna on my, and Soto on my ballot, no question. And probably Betts is my third, although uh, Castellanos is, uh, I'd probably take him over Winker just because I think the, the track record's a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit stronger. Yeah. What's going to happen is if, if Ozzy Albies wins the fan vote at second base, right, and then Ryan McMahon has to be placed on there as the only Rocky, because like, you know, Trevor Story is a bigger name, but there's lots of good shortstops and he hasn't had a great year. Then I think Brian Reynolds has to be one of your outfielders. And he's been great. So it's it's not like a, a gift, you know, but like, would you necessarily put him over Juan Soto normally? No. Might you have to do that this year? Uh, possibly. That's always like the fun kind of jigsaw puzzle. All right. American League catcher. Uh, I always respect how well 
the Kansas City fans show up because Sal Perez is winning with 42% of the vote. He is going to win. He's having a good year. He's hitting the ball hard. Here's what I want. Here's what I want to see happen. Just as someone who is a fan of chaos and people getting annoyed. I want Yasmani Grandal, who is now hitting, oh, he's up to 172. It had been like a buck 30 for two months. I want him to make the all-star team. And there's an argument for it, right? He is an elite pitch framer. He gets on base. He hits for power. Like he is actually, if you look at, uh, you know, let's say like OPS plus, he's hitting exactly as well as Sal Perez and Gary Sanchez. I don't think he'll make the team, but I want that because I personally think it would be funny. Uh, I got to give it up for Sal Perez. There's a few players. I was never like when he was coming up, I was like, I don't know if this guy's really going to, how good he's going to be, but he's just been so steady. He seems to be hitting for more power than he ever did, which has been really impressive to me. And he just, other than, you know, he had that freak injury and he missed all of 2019, but just has been incredibly durable. I remember like in like 2014, the uh, the Royals, he caught 150 games, then they went to the World Series and he caught every game. And then he went on the Japan tour afterwards <laughs> and caught in Japan. So He's just been someone who he, he, you know, he posts up, as they say, and he's really also a great personality and a great ambassador for the game. So I have no issues with him starting in the All-Star game. You know what I would like to see Sal Perez do? I would like to see him in the Home Run Derby. I think he'd be a lot of fun. We know some of the guys, like we know Otani's doing it. We know Alonzo's doing it. We know Vlad Jr. says he's probably not going to do it. I want to see Sal Perez do it. Like I, I, he's, you know, swings at everything. Who cares? It's a home run derby. He crushes baseballs. And as you said, he's he's fun. Like, would he not be fun to watch during the home run derby? He'll never do it, right? We'll never ask him to do it. <laughs> like, I want that. Sure, I'm in. I'm into it. Um, nationally catcher uh, uh, Buster Posey, who is having like a monstrous comeback season, is the number one fan vote. No problem with that. Yachty's number two. This kind of gets back also into who do you want to see versus who is having the best season. We we had talked about how Yachty um, had been kind of crushing the ball for a while. He's pretty rough over the last couple weeks. He's back down to being like a league average hitter. And National League catcher is fun to me because it's the opposite of National League first baseman, where there are like a surprising amount of really good hitters right now, like Buster Posey, obviously. Uh, Will Smith has been pretty good. Omar Narvaez has been shockingly good. JT Romuto, pretty good. Carson Kelly's missed time, but he's been good. You know, you have Wilson Contreras, even Tucker Barnhart's been hitting a little bit. I don't know that um, all those guys are going to get on. I don't think I would pick Yadi Molina, but I think he has a chance to win, to maybe not win the fan vote, but once you get to the second round. But yeah, I'm, I'm I'm rooting for Posey. I feel like this is like, this is uh, what, the way the way it should be based on performance and track record, uh, and you know, and stardom. That he he would be the just starter of the All Star game, in my opinion. Uh, and the final position here is designated hitter in the American League. Unsurprisingly, Shohei Otani is winning this by a lot. So, like I said, when I put together my own personal um, ones, I list them out in positions, and I always give Otani his own position. Like he is not designated hitter or pitcher he is just otani and somehow that got picked up by japanese twitter because for the last week i've had like thousands of likes and, and retweets with like japanese characters i don't understand so i think they like that which like i appreciate i'm, I'm working on a big long form piece about you know how amazingly good otani is here's the thing though with buxton hurt nelson cruz has to make this team right so Otani will make it as a DH or a pitcher or whatever you want to call him. JD Martinez has been great. Jordan Alvarez has been great. Mercedes has no shot, but you got to get Cruz on there. 
Well, that's for the that's for the manager and the players and all that to work out. This should have been my rant. Who are the sixty five percent of people who are not voting for Shohei Otani <laughs> for the All Star Game? <laughs> what world is this? Like, come um, on, come on, people! He has thirty five percent. No one else has more than sixteen percent. He should have like ninety five percent. Well, I think part. Okay, I agree with you. Part of it is, you know, people are going to vote for their own fan base. If you're a Red Sox fan, you're going to vote for J.D. Martinez. I guess. This is Otani we're talking about. This well, is by maybe. far the coolest thing that's happened in baseball this year and in in I don't know how many years. It's incredible. This is why I don't have him listed as a DH on my own roster. I have him listed as an Otani because to just <laughs> say he's a DH does not fully explain everything that's going on with him. All right. That was fun. We will take a quick break and we'll be back with our three batter minimum. You know what's a tough pill to swallow? Watching your team strand runners. You know what's an easy pill to swallow? The new daily multivitamin from official MLB partner Roman. The peppermint-coated pills are created by doctors and backed by science. Whether you're a five-tool player or just looking to support your general health, the 23 ingredients target men's everyday nutrient needs and overall well-being. Visit GetRoman.com slash MLB today to learn more and bring your A-game every day. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers will go into our three batter minimum, which is three interesting topics from baseball this week. We absolutely have to talk about Wander Franco, who has been promoted to the Tampa Bay Rays, the consensus number one overall prospect in baseball. Uh, important to note, because I, I didn't realize this till the other day, the Rays on their website actually have a really cool pronunciation guide where not only is it spelled out, but they actually have audio clips from the players themselves saying their names. So it's not Wander Franco, like he's John Franco, it's Wander Franco. And I implore you to go to that page and look up Ryan Yarbrough saying his own name, because I don't know if he's actually trying to do a Ron Burgundy impression, but I swear it comes out like Ryan Yarbrough. And that is how I'm going. Well, he's like the only way I'm going to be able to think about him um, from now on. So Wander Franco has, you know, been the like, well-known player in the minors for years. Like I said, a consensus top prospect. He came up, uh, I guess, on Monday night. And his first plate appearance. Tuesday, was, he was called up on Monday, but his first game, his first game was Tuesday. Great. I kind of forgot what day it was right now. And it's Thursday. So that was two days ago. So thank you. His first plate appearance was against Eduardo Rodriguez. And he swung at the first two pitches he saw and got down 0-2, and then drew a walk. And I know like you know, our walks as much fun as giant 500-foot blasts. No, that was a fun walk. And just because it tells you a lot about the kind of batter he is, like I'm not a prospect expert. You know, I, I had never seen him play. I know prospects because I read MLB Pipeline and, you know, Fangraphs and Keith Law. But the one thing I knew about him in the minors was that he had this reputation as having like this amazing eye at the plate. Like just if you look at the numbers for his minor league career, he had 95 walks and 75 strikeouts, which is like a wildly good ratio for a guy this young. And you you saw it just in that first plate appearance. And I know he homered and I know he doubled, but that was the thing that stuck out to me right away. It was like you came back from down 0-2 against a good pitcher in your first ever plate appearance and you drew a walk like that, that I feel like that tells you a lot right there. And the first game with, with with prospects, right? You never know what you're going to get because players come to the majors and they react differently. There was a lot of excitement about uh, Jared Kelnick's debut, and he he's really struggled out of the gate. He went back to minors. I'm sure he'll be back soon. But Wander Franco, there was you know, a lot of attention around that game, and 
at least for his debut, he lived up to the hype. And his, you know, he I think his second at bat, he flew out, and then he hit a game tying three run, three run home run, and then another double after that. Was that right? I mean, it was it was okay. This guy's good. And then he turned another like nifty double play later in the game. The Rays ended up losing the game, but nothing not not for lack of trying by Wander Franco. Yeah, and uh, uh, ten plate appearances in his first two games, and only one strikeout, three walks, a home run, and a double, which is all you know, super very impressive. Um, I did you realize that the Rays before they won last night had lost seven straight? Like I know losing Glasnow doesn't help. They got swept in Seattle. I mean, that was kind of the impetus I think for calling up Franco. Was oh, we just got swept in Seattle. Our cushion in first place is gone. They're they're now a half game behind the Red Sox in that division. So I think that was okay. You know what? We actually, we have this guy in the minors. He could be uh, an impact player from day one. We need to we need to get this going. I mean, they actually have him playing third base just to get him in the lineup. His natural position is shortstop, but they have uh, uh, Taylor Walls, who had already been called up to play shortstop, and uh, Franco playing playing third base right now. We actually got our hands on some uh, long term projections from uh, courtesy of our friend uh, Brian Oliver, who does the uh, sorry Brian Cartwright, who does the Oliver projection system. He put together. Um, 10-year projections for Wander Franco. And then our friend Tom, or I should say friend and colleague Tom Tango put together, he's kind of off that, put together a, a best and worst case scenario for a 90th percentile and a 10th percentile projection for, for Franco. And I guess it's not surprising considering all the hype around him, but projections by nature are generally pretty conservative. But even the like mid-tier projections for Wander Franco are basically... I don't know if superstar is the right word, but, you know, multiple time all-star level. And if you look at his 90th percentile projections, you're looking at, oh, Hall of Fame level player, which is always pretty, pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah, no pressure, dude. Like all the the projections you're saying, oh, you'll probably be a a Hall of Fame player. He's the youngest player uh, in the major leagues right now. And yeah, I'm looking at these projections and they're, you know, they're interesting. Like it's not just taking your minor league stat line, although it's obviously a lot of that. And it's also applying it to age. You know, if you if you come up at 20 like he has, it's very different than coming up at like, you know, 25 or 28 or or 29. And I don't know, it's it's hard to say like a guy this young is going to be an instant superstar, but it certainly feels like guys who have come up over the last couple of years have been more successful sooner. You know, I, you know, there's always a Kellenic, uh, Joe Adele has not worked out so well so far, uh, but Soto, right? Like <laughs> Tatis. Acuna, um, like it is pretty clear that the talent level in baseball, the youthful talent is better than it's ever been. And he is the next guy. And it's it's kind of fun to think that he is there and he's joining a team that I know they lost seven straight, but has been, if not the best team in baseball, pretty close to it. All right. Our second topic is uh, almost an apology. I have not paid much attention to Matt Olson this year up until the other day when I looked at his stats and I was kind of blown away by what he's done last year. Did not have a good year. Hit 195, 310 on base, a 424 slugging percentage. Uh, he actually told uh, Martin Gallegos, who is our A's beat writer in February, and this is a quote, to put it bluntly, I stunk last year, in my opinion, which I appreciate. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. He's like a league average hitter, uh, but he, he you know, wasn't great. This year, he's hitting 298. He's got a 376 on base, a 604 slugging. So he's 67% better than league average. He has, if you look at everybody who had 200 plate appearances from last year to this year, the second biggest slugging percentage increase behind Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the fourth biggest weighted runs created plus increase. But this is my favorite part here. He has dropped his strikeout rate from 
to 16%, right? That's the biggest strikeout rate drop by a lot, by a lot, 15%, right? 15 percentage points. Uh, nobody else is even at 10. And when you think about the version of Matt Olson, who was like a really good slugger from, you know, 17, 18, 19, even then he had his strikeouts. He was like a 25%-ish strikeout guy. And now he's down to below or above, depending on how you want to look at it, league average. He's striking out less than the league average. And I wanted to know why, so I spent some time looking it up. And I found two quotes from him uh, to The Athletic, actually. So in January, he said, part of it was his bat path. He said, last year, my bat was flat. It was really horizontal. So that one was kind of fun to me because you know, how many times have you heard people say, oh, swing level? <laughs> you know, I don't think he's swinging level anymore. And then the other one is he talked about was last year when they had Tommy LaStella, he brought this little red pitching machine, right? Which, quote, shot balls out of a high velocity, but at a lower angle. And Olsen apparently liked it and has been using it to get on top of the ball. And I don't think we pay much, enough attention to Olsen because if you look at like the American League MVP, obviously Otani, Vlad Jr., there's some other stars, but the A's, again, have been a pretty good team. And I think a big part of it is that, you know, Matt Olson has had this huge comeback. I mean, they are two games out, but they're also 14 games over 500. And we maybe should be paying more attention to Matt Olson. Yeah. And I think the A's are going to, the A's are in a tough spot just because of how well the Astros are playing. Uh, and, and also, if you, you, I don't like to look too much at run differential this time of year because a couple weird games can, can can swing things. That said, the Astros run differential. The Astros are two games up on the A's right now, but their their run differential is one thirty five plus one thirty five, and the A's are plus twenty nine. So there's a level of, of of dominance by the Astros that I think suggests that's that's at this, even at this point in the season that's that's a real difference, and I think just suggests that the Astros at this point are really the team to beat in that division. So then you look at the wild card and it's going to be, I, I kind of see it as Oakland versus the the AL East teams, right? Because Cleveland's somehow, despite all of their starting pitchers being hurt, somehow is still nine games over 500. I guess it helps to to play in, in such a in such a weak division. It gives you a chance to uh, to kind of keep your head above water. And, you know, the the Indians are 21 and 12 against the Central, which, which helps. So the, it's really, to me, it's the A's against, you know, those, those, um, the AL East teams, probably you know, the three teams will probably are going to be div- battling for the division and the wild card. Because I, at this point, I'd have to think that, that that Houston is the is the clear favorite in that division. But Olson was, you know, he's had a weird career path, right? 2017, he came up same season that Aaron Judge kind of blew up, and there was Aaron Judge was like the flavor of the month, and then Olson came up in the middle of the season and was hitting homers like crazy, and it was like, oh, this is the next big slugger. And he hasn't. He, 2019, he was he was good. Hit 36 home runs last year, as you noted, was terrible. And now we're kind of seeing a better version of the 2019 Matt Olson again. You know, what I just realized. I, I think at the end of this year, we are probably going to get to do a Stackcast broadcast on ESPN two of the American League Wild Card. And as it stands right now, that would be Rays and A's, which is exactly what it was the last time we did that in 2019. <laughs> Uh, the last thing I wanted to point out on Olsen is like, I can't remember if I've shared this story or not before, but over the winter, uh, I was doing like this, this TV thing and a Olsen was listed on like this, this list of best players in baseball or whatever. And a somewhat prominent TV person offered uh, an opinion of disgust at that because he'd hit 195 and he said, why are we highlighting guys who strike out and hit home runs and have low batting averages? And I, I disagreed and I'm very happy to see Matt Olson crushing the ball because he's also a very good defensive first baseman. Like he's a good player who we shouldn't care too much a about his batting average or B about, you know, a two month season, uh, 
of the weirdest season of all time. Here's the third thing. Here's our third topic. I'm excited about this. So the Braves, right? The Braves don't shift. Last year, they were dead last in shifts. They shifted only 7% of the time. Nobody shifted less. And if you go back from 2018 through the first month of this season, they only shifted 13% of the time. Second lowest. They don't shift. They haven't shifted. I actually had started writing a thing about, hey, the Braves never shift. I didn't end up finishing it. And now I'm pretty glad I didn't. In April, they shifted 10% of the time. That was dead last. And then in May, they shifted 30% of the time. And now in June, they're shifting 60% of the time. They have gone from lowest in April to second most in June. I haven't seen anybody talking about this. They're shifting lefties three quarters of the time and righties half the time. Have you seen anybody talking about why after all these years in 2021, midway through the season, they finally decided, hey, uh, shifting, let's let's try that. You're the only person I've seen mention it um, to me on Slack prior to this uh, podcast. <laughs> I could has, I could take a guess, which is just that the Braves pitching has been a little bit of a mess in terms of injuries and guys not really performing all, even like they're, they're sort of core, some of their core guys not really performing all that well. And I could see it just of a, hey, we're, we're trying to make things work with a bunch of, you know, minor league 4A types and have to bridge the gap until some of our other guys get, you know, uh, when, if, you know, if maybe Mike, Mike Soroka will come back this year. It's still unclear who Oscar, you know, maybe, you know, when he comes back, he was pitching well before he broke his hand. So I think it's probably my, my guess is it's that of just, we kind of need to figure something out for run prevention because we're working with, um, less than our best, uh, staff. I don't disagree with you. The, the team, the pitching staff is kind of a mess right now. It's just unusual, it's unusual to see it implemented like right in the middle of a season like this. And I'm not even sure it's helped. You know, it's it's really difficult to like evaluate the shift because it's not just about, you know, turning batted balls and outs. Obviously, that's a big part of it. But the shift does a lot of different things. If you look at, you know, the batting average on ground balls allowed for them, you know, they had allowed the sixth highest in April and now it's 15th highest. But we're only talking about a, a couple of points. Um, their infield outs above average is actually terrible in June. So maybe is that that they're not used to it is that that it's they're not implementing it properly i don't know like this is a bigger thing than i was able to look into i just noticed that after years of not doing it they are suddenly doing it and i kind of just want someone to like get ron washington their infield coach on the phone and say what are you doing because i remember last year i asked brian snicker hey you guys never shift and he's like i don't know ron washington tells us what to do (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't have a good answer to this i just saw this and i'm like the world needs to know and it's weird and i appreciate that we're going to take a quick break and we will come back on the ballpark dimensions podcast i'm xavier scruggs host of the bigs and this ain't your average sports podcast this is mlb's first player to player show you'll hear behind the scenes insights from guys like chicago white Sox shortstop tim anderson you know, I was the youngest and, you know, being black coming up, man, it was definitely weird, you know, trying to have some locker room presence. I formed myself into a player I am today, so now there's a lot of respect that comes with that. Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher David Price. Double A was in Montgomery. We had six guys staying in a two-bedroom. I slept on an air mattress under the dining room table. And my guy, St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Jack Flaherty. My mom was scared. She was like, it's a scary place to be in because I don't want... You know, she saw what happened in Kaepernick. The best way to hear these conversations is to subscribe. Find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. 
We are back to finish up the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to pick a player that you should be talking more about, that we should focus upon. I was originally going to do Yankees reliever Johnny Loisaga here because uh, he's been like shockingly good. And then the Orioles called up a knuckleballer. And after what happened yesterday, I'm not sure how long he's going to stick around. But when there's a knuckleballer, we are talking about a knuckleballer. Mickey Janis is 33 years old. He was drafted by Tampa Bay in the 44th round in 2010. Um, only pitched for the Rays in the minors for two years, got released, and then he turned to the knuckleball and he spent a bunch of years in independent league. Lake Erie Crushers and Bridgeport, back to Lake Erie, Southern Maryland, Long Island, and got signed by the Mets in 2015 and spent the next five years from 2015 through 2019 in the Mets minor league system with the knuckleball, never got called up, didn't pitch anywhere last year, signed with the Orioles this year on a minor league contract. Well, he got called up. He actually got called up and he got to pitch yesterday and I was so excited. And then I watched the game and oh no, they made him pitch against the Astros. It did not go great. Three and a third innings, seven earned runs, three homers, four, four walks, one strikeout. Here's the most damning thing. I think he threw 71 pitches, did not get a single swing and miss. It's not what you want. Um, I just I hope he gets another shot because knuckleballers are cool. We haven't we were at like a low point in the history of knuckleballers, right? It's been a decade since Tim Wakefield retired. Ari Dickey retired after 2017. You know, Stephen Wright was around for a while, but he hasn't pitched in two years. And Ryan Fiera Ben tried to do it a couple of years ago. A few position players. Knuckleballers are cool. They are weird. They are good for baseball. Um, the Orioles just need to fill innings. I hope that that lousy debut is not the beginning and the end of the Mickey Janis story. Because I was so excited when he came up and the knuckleball is cool, especially when you see like the super slow-mo videos. It didn't go great. I want more Mickey Janis. That's what it is. If there was ever a time for a knuckleballer to be useful, I feel like it's right now when teams are so desperate for innings of any, like of any, so if you could even just be, you, I, I don't, honestly don't even think you need to be above average. If you could just, if you could be a mop-up man, but a, like a reasonable mop-up man where you can pitch, you know, three inning chunks two or three times a week when in, you know, low, low leverage situations, I think that would actually have a ton of value for a lot of teams. Obviously, you know, seven earned runs in, 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 in three and a third innings is you're not clearing the bar. <laughs> it was the Astros. But, They're really good. I know. But if you could get there, I would think that with teams so desperate for innings anywhere they can get them, uh, I could, I, I, there's never been a better time, I think for, for, uh, for, for knuckleballers. Okay. Or for potential knuckleballers, I should say. The guy I want to talk, bring up is Royals right-hander Brady Singer. And I'm not raising him because I think he's especially good, although he might be pretty good. Um, I just think he's interesting because I've always been kind of a sucker for sinker slider guys. Uh, longtime listeners of this podcast will remember my infatuation with Luis Perdomo, formerly of the Padres, now of the Brewers, but out for the year, um, hopefully to make his triumphant return uh, next year. I just always find something very aesthetically pleasing about pitchers who – with really good sinkers, and it's kind of you don't really see them anymore just because of the way the game has changed. But guys who are able to consistently get outs on balls and play, this just it's an aesthetically pleasing uh, way to watch a game of guys who can just really get a lot of ground balls. At least to me, that is. Um, and there, here's Brady Singer, fifty-eight percent sinker percentage this year, thirty-five percent slider. That is the fifth highest sinker percentage among qualifiers. He doesn't actually throw it 
that hard, um, which might be an issue down the road, uh, about 94 miles an hour. Um, he is one of 11 qualified pitchers with the ground ball rate above 50%. So that's what I'm talking about with that, you know, consistently get ground balls. He did an interview with uh, David Lorila of Fangraphs in March. And if, uh, if you are interested in sinker ball pitchers or good good pitcher interviews, I would recommend the interview. Um, and he's, this is what Singer said. I'm a sinker guy. I'm one of the few singer guys that are still around. The big thing now with analytics is four seamers up in the zone with a lot of ride. I'm fully two seamers. I can make it run and I can make it sink. And now what you might be thinking is, wait, is he a sinker guy or a two seamer guy? And that's always been one of those weird things where some people use the terms interchangeably. Some people use them um, where there's a slight nuance to it. If you read the interview and he talks about this, and this is part of what I find interesting and why I kind of want to bear down on Brady Singer's next start, is he talks about how he does throw the pitch a little bit differently to get slightly different movements. Sometimes he wants it to kind of fade into righties. Sometimes he wants it to to dip a little bit into um, into the strike zone. Um, the other thing that's that stands out to me is he's been a bit, quote unquote, unlike lucky this year. Um, his 340 batting average on balls in play is the fourth highest in baseball. But last year, his 260 batting average on balls in play was the 11th lowest in baseball among qualifiers. Um Long story short, the ERA is vastly different this year than last, but the expected ERA is almost identical, um, and it's at 385. The expected batting average is almost identical. I think he's kind of interesting as sort of a throwback pitcher. Like I don't think he's an ace, but again, there's such a des- desperation for innings that a guy, to me, guys who can get the ball out on balls in play can usually pitch longer because they're not reliant on, strike zone, on strikeouts to get outs. And so if you could be someone who can get – you know, regularly pitch six innings with a four ERA, you're extremely valuable in this day and age. And that's sort of like the the world that I think a guy like him can occupy. And I'm actually now I'm very curious to watch a couple of his starts and kind of see see how he goes about his business. Okay. That's all that's all I got. I got I got okay. I had to think for a second when you said you were gonna do Brady Singer about what team Brady Singer was on. So I he's he's yeah, okay. Good. Yeah. Fine. Pro- prospect prospect towns will remember going into his Junior year at the University of Florida, he was kind of like the guy, and it was like, oh, this guy might be the number one pick in the draft. He was he had only had an okay junior year. He fell to number eighteen in the 2018 draft to Florida. Again, like I'm not like, oh, this guy's going to be an ace. I don't think he's going to be ace, but he is interesting to me, and hopefully, maybe interesting to you now. Is a little bit interesting to you now as well. Yeah, you're not wrong, by the way, about two pitch pitcher. I mean, sixty percent sinkers and thirty five percent sliders, and that adds up almost to. 100%. You don't, you don't see too many guys uh, get by with that. And I, I imagine he's constantly trying to work on a third pitch. But you know what? I like this one because I honestly, like I said, did not know much about Brady Singer. So, Brady Singer. so um, anytime you can bring something to the table that educates me on someone new, I appreciate it. We're going to finish off with our purpose pitches. Matt and I each like to pick something to yell about. As I kind of mentioned before, mine was going to be about the third base ballot for the All-Star team in the National League. If you were to go to Fangrass right now, and you were to sort by third baseman in the National League, and you were sorted by wins above replacement, you would see essentially a three-way tie, right? Manny Machado with 2.1, Justin Turner with 2.1, Nolan Arenado with 2.0. This is a separate, very quick mini rant. That is a tie. There is no difference in decimal points of war. Like, don't tell me that 2.1 is more than 2.0. It's not. It's tie. And you'd say, oh, okay, well, like, those three guys are the best third baseman. You know, a little further down, Austin Riley's had kind of a up and down year and Eduardo Escobar is there, but like those are the guys. Not shown on that list, Chris Bryant, who actually would be uh, also tied basically, but otherwise at the top with 2.2. And the reason for that is 
as Matt alluded to before, the Cubs have had kind of a weird year. Chris Bryant has only played 30% of his games at third base. He's played a lot in the outfield because Jock Peterson's been hurt and Hayward's been hurt and Ian Happ hasn't been that great. And he played some first base because Anthony Rizzo got hurt. And they've had other third basemen like David Bodie and, and Matt Duffy and Patrick Wisdom have all played third base. So Chris Bryant has not played much third base this year. And so when I included him on my you know hypothetical all-star team at third base, excluding Manny Machado, uh, Padres fans got really, really mad about it. And the reason for that was, well, Chris Bryant's not playing third base this year. How can you consider him a third baseman? Well, here's the way this works. Each, you probably, Matt, know this better than I do. I think the logistics of it. But at some point early in the season, I don't know exactly when, I assume like early to mid-May or something like this, each team, you know, kind of submits who their guys will be on the ballot, right? And they pick, here's what position they'll be at. And I think you get, at least in the infield, one guy per position. Chris Bryant obviously has been a career third baseman through the end of last year. 88% of his games came at third. And yeah, he played some outfield and first base, but he is a third baseman. So it doesn't matter what he's done this year. You don't get to change it on the ballot. I don't care if he's been catching for the last two months. You know, he's on the ballot as a third baseman. It's not my choice. He is listed at third base. It doesn't matter where he's been playing. Nobody likes this. Everybody gets so upset about this. It's like, that's just where he is. It's not my call. Don't get mad at me. I like Manny Machado too. I don't know if he's going to make the all-star team or should make the all-star team yet. Kind of a lousy season up until like three weeks ago and he's been really good lately. But the fact is, Chris Bryant is a third baseman. That is where he is on the ballot. That is sort of the end of it. Knock it off, Padres fans. And for you listeners out there, I hope that our uh, teaser on Chris Bryant and the third base uh, controversy was a uh, was was <laughs> the pay- I hope the payoff was there for you. Um, my rant is a two pronged rant. Um, a little bit about uh, pace of play and a little bit about uh, instant replay. I don't know, Mike, I know you're not really uh, an NBA fan, but I imagine some of our listeners were watching game two of the Western Conference Finals on, I I don't even know what, I guess it was Tuesday night, Suns versus the Clippers. The Suns win on a dramatic alley-oop at the buzzer. It was really an incredible play. One of the probably, it should, in my opinion, should be an iconic play. They're calling it the valley-oop. Jay Crowder throws it from out of bounds to DeAndre Ayton with 0.9 seconds on the clock. Dunk, amazing. However, the last 90 seconds of that game were absolutely miserable. According to the Twitter account StatMuse, the last 90 seconds of the game, of game time, took 33 real-time minutes. There were wait, as wait, many- wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. 90 seconds took 33 <laughs> How is that possible? You're right. I didn't watch the game. I don't follow basketball that closely. How is that possible? There were as many replay reviews, five, as field goals in that span. It was absolutely brutal. There was no flow to the game whatsoever. So first thing, I don't ever want to hear anyone talk about baseball's pace of play problem again, unless you're also talking about the NBA's pace of play problem, because the end of NBA, close NBA games can be absolutely brutal. And I say this as an NBA fan, way worse than anything that happens in terms of baseball's pace of play. Secondly, this was also a perfect example of be careful what you wish for with instant replay because what should have been an all-time classic game was absolutely destroyed by replay reviews. You had like one replay where it was like the ball was tipped out of bounds. They had to review, was it out of bounds by this guy or forced out by that guy? And by like the letter of the law, it was actually, you know, off the hand of the ball handler, but it was kind of forced out by the defender. It's the kind of play that never would have been reversed until they instituted replay and no one would have ever thought twice about it. And then on the the alley-oop at the end, 
no one celebrated because all everyone did immediately was like, okay, they're going to review this. So like there was like kind of a half-hearted celebration and the players kind of put their arms up and they just kind of looked at each other like, is this going to count? And it was like, that stinks. Like this should be like such an iconic moment where basically, you know, the players should be going nuts. The fans should be going nuts. And everyone just kind of stopped and looked at each other and they went and reviewed it. And it took like, you know, eight minutes for them to determine that the, that it was going to count. And they had to check the clock and then they put, you know, 0.7 seconds on the clock. And then it was just, I think that, you know, we've, we've, we've lost the plot a little with replay. Um, and I think fans are, what did we really, the whole goal when it was instituted is like avoid egregious mistakes and I feel like we've gotten to the point where we litigate everything and we've lost some of this drama. And I think that that game was a perfect um, example of that. I I disagree with you a little bit about replay, but I think you raise a good point because I do think that there are some like serious pace of play concerns with baseball. I'm pretty sure you know, pace of play and time of game are different things, obviously. I'm pretty sure we are up to the longest average game time in history again. Pace of play in between pitches. Um, I've long been in favor of pitch clocks. I, I don't want to like hand wave aside those issues as not being problems because I, I believe they are problems that demand solutions. But I also think we get we get stuck, at least I know I do because I don't follow the other sports as well. You get stuck in your baseball bubble so well that you kind of forget that like if you look at any other sport, fans are kind of complaining about how terrible that sport is. You know what I mean? Like what you just talked about uh, in basketball. I, you know, as I mentioned before, over the last year or two, I've gotten back into watching hockey. And I remember, you know, before the shutdown last year, I watched a hockey game and I was like, oh, that was fun. I, I enjoyed that hockey game. And then I read an article by uh, Ken Dryden, who was a, a Hall of Fame goalie back in the day, outlining all the problems with hockey today. And I was like, oh, am I an idiot because I enjoyed that? What am, what, what am I missing here? So I, I agree with you um, that it's, you know, some of the issues with baseball are just issues with sports and it's not specific to baseball, even though there are issues with baseball as well that will do it for this week's podcast don't miss an episode by subscribing on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions please leave us a rating and a review thanks for listening to the ballpark dimensions podcast see you next week talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like i lost my mojo or we avoid it altogether with excuses like i had a long day at work or sorry honey i'm just not feeling it But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB.